Hello and welcome back to Recover to Flourish, the podcast that aims to debunk all things eating disorder recovery and bring a bit of light to your eating disorder recovery journey. I'm your host, Kiandra. I'm an eating disorder recovery coach and I have lived experience of recovering from my own eating disorder. And this podcast aims to bring awareness and information to help you on your journey. And in today's episode, I am welcomed by a really, really special guest, Talia. And Talia is a registered dietitian with just under a decade of experience within the eating disorder recovery field. And we're going to be talking about nutritional rehabilitation, meal planning, and kind of everything food relating to eating disorder recovery, all those questions that you might, you know, have wanted to ask but been scared to. Hopefully this this episode will help. So I'm going to dive straight into it because I'm excited to get started. So hello, Talia. It's lovely to meet you. Yeah, um, long time coming. I know we've been back and forward with communications. Life life gets busy, doesn't it? Um, But it's lovely to have you here. So I think for the listeners who maybe don't know who you are, can you tell me a little bit about, about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So as, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a registered dietitian and I've been working in the space of eating disorders and disordered eating for some time. Um, I currently work part-time on an eating disorders inpatient unit in London. And then outside of that, I am the founder of TCN. So TCN is a virtual clinic so a team of eating disorder dietitians that support people to improve their relationship with food from a non-diet, weight-inclusive informed, health-at-every-size-informed approach. And the clinic also has a whole you know, bunch of resources um, that are available to people in their recovery as well. Amazing. So you've you've definitely been on your, your own kind of journey with working with, I suppose, different people and in different environments. I'm sure that's given you a lot of like um, grounding to help others. Yeah, absolutely. I think because I have had experience across the whole realm of recovery, I guess you could say, in terms of inpatient, day patient, outpatient. And I do truly think that some of my best teachers have been my patients and my clients. So I would like to say that I have, you know, very good understanding of supporting people in their recovery and am able to to adapt to the level of of care that someone might need. For sure. And I think, you know, I think it's worth mentioning like eating disorders are not just about food, yet food is such an important part of people's journeys a lot of the time. So yes, there is an underlying um, emotions, feelings, behaviours that do, you know, kind of it's like an umbrella, isn't it? An eating disorder. But again, food and nutritional rehabilitation is a crucial part for many people's journeys, not all, but many people's journeys. So for me, for others, why is nutritional rehabilitation or even, you know, when we talk about refeeding, a critical part of eating disorder recovery? How, How does it impact someone? Yeah, so I I think that when someone might have, you know, be really in the depths of their disordered eating or their eating disorder, they can't really see clearly how much restrictive eating is impacting their everyday life, both through their psychology, so their mental health and also their physical health. And often people will say to me, but, you know, but Talia, I'm still eating or I'm still eating regularly or I feel I'm eating enough. But often what I hear people say is that they're fine or they don't feel that they're sick enough because they can't see the impact that undernutrition has. So when we look at how critical refeeding or nutritional rehabilitation is, it is so vital to anyone if, you know, if they want to improve 
the quality of their life and recover from their eating disorder or disordered eating. We know that when the human body is living in an undernourished state, that famine response and that starvation mode will kick in. And one of the you know, best examples, and I'm sure you might speak about this, Keandra, if you're clients as well is a starvation study which has showed us so much about how when the human body is in a a semi-starved or starved state how much undernutrition impacts the body so for anyone that doesn't know about the starvation study it was a study that was conducted in the 1940s a little bit biased in that it was a group of young white Caucasian men um, but we can still learn a lot from what the study showed and so that the men underwent a six-month period of semi-starvation And there's such a crossover between the experiences of these men and also the experiences of people who are weight suppressed or not nourishing their bodies enough in that there is a significant impact on people's psychological health. So we see a drop in concentration, we see mood swings, we see increased anxiety and depression We see people withdraw socially, have increased risk of engaging in self-harming behaviours. And then on a physical level, we see the impact that, you know, that has energy restriction has on every single organ in the body. So we see digestive issues, reduced heart rate, blood pressure, changes to people's bone health, menstruation, hormone levels. Um, So refeeding really is critical because, that's part of giving the body enough energy to reverse all of these side effects that are a result of undernutrition. And I think that when people are in a state of undernutrition for such a long time, it can become a new normal and it can be very difficult to see. And there's such a a cloud around some people in regards to what was life like before I was living in this state of undernutrition. Definitely. And I think, you know, it's worth noting, I know from my experience just with past colleagues of a lot of general population are a lot well, nutrient suppressed, you know, these crash diets and even that awareness of how much do I actually need to eat. So, you know, I think the concentrated within the eating disorder or disordered eating population, but a lot of people, general population can be nutrient suppressed through a variety of reasons as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really good question that will statement that you said, you said, a lot of people don't know how much their body needs. And I think there's so much confusion because we get so many messages about certain calorie numbers and diets that make us to believe that the human body can thrive off less energy than actually what the human body does need. And so you're absolutely right that, you know, disordered eating is rife and there's many people that are not nourishing their body to the extent that they would need. Definitely. And I suppose, you know, it's also worth worthwhile noting, or I mean, it's something that I know some of my clients have expressed is you can be, you know, need to go through nutritional rehabilitation, even if you are a quote unquote healthy weight. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Nutritional rehabilitation is not just if you are living in a body that is deemed underweight. I think one of the key considerations is that you can be malnourished in any body weight or body size or shape. And that's where we see the term weight suppression come in. So you may not be classed as being in an underweight body, but you can still be weight suppressed. And what I mean by that is that your weight is lower than where it would naturally settle and where you would be most 
healthiest and thriving at. Um, and that's where we get into a really difficult, I guess, higher risk area because a lot of people falling in this category aren't getting the support or access to support that they need. Definitely. And I think, you know, it's the health at every size movement, you know, and and again, unfortunately, society has got this image around what is an eating disorder and what mm. is not. And it's so wrong, but there seems to be some steps in the right direction, not, you know, everything. But again, it's about getting as much information out there that you can and if, you know, you can have an eating disorder, if you're a health, a healthy weight, quote unquote, it just might not be a healthy weight for you. So when you're working with clients, obviously it's so specific, individualistic and, and tailored to them. But what are the key steps and considerations when creating a, a meal plan or a, a, a nutritional guide um, for somebody's recovery needs? Yeah. Yeah. There's so many factors to consider. Um, so as, as a dietitian, one of my main considerations in my assessment, sort of at the forefront of my mind when I'm starting to work with someone is thinking about their risk of refeeding syndrome. Um, and then that will really guide sort of how, um, what the starting sort of nutrition template or, you know, meal plan would be for someone. Um, so some people aren't aware of refeeding syndrome. I think especially if they're not you know, in contact with their GP regularly or a health professional that might, you know, be well-trained in the eating disorder space. Um, so refeeding syndrome is something that doesn't happen that often anymore because we're very aware of it and we know how to treatment, uh, how to treat it, sorry. But refeeding syndrome is something that can develop when the body goes from being in a malnourished state to starting the, the refeeding or renourishment process um, too quickly. So when someone is following a restrictive diet instead of their body receiving all the energy that it needs through food the body starts to break down and use fat stores and break down muscle as a form of energy and what refeeding syndrome is is that when someone starts to eat again the body needs to then convert that energy from food and use it in the body and there can be a rush of a lot of important nutrients, so vitamins, minerals, electrolytes that are used to break down food and convert that into energy. So some of the, the key ones there are potassium and phosphate, magnesium, calcium. So if there's not enough to then sort of continue using for all the other body processes, we can start to see some, some breakdown and reduction in function of other bodily functions such as muscle contraction and your, your heart contracting. So one of the, the key considerations is to assess someone for risk of refeeding and then that approach, if someone was at a, a high risk or extremely high risk, would be to have more of a graded approach to stepping up their nutritional intake and carbohydrate intake. Um, but then outside of that, once someone's sort of outside of that window of being at high risk, which is usually around a two-week period, and there are different ways of, of managing that, which I won't get into here, um, but it's definitely looking at where the, the person is in front of me, where they're at in regards to their nutrition. Um, and the approach that I really look at following is um, the RAVES approach. So it is an acronym that is used to, to follow the stepwise approach to normalising someone's relationship with food. Um, so it's, it's cut down into three phases. So the first phase is... Uh, RNA, so we're looking at regularity of someone's eating, so three meals and three snacks. 
adequacy, ensuring that they're meeting their nutritional needs. Phase two, we're then looking at variety, eating socially and building spontaneity into someone's eating. And then phase three is intuitive eating. So when I'm working with someone to to build that first meal plan, I'm looking at what phase someone might fall into and then deciding what are the first starting starting steps? Is it establishing regularity? Is it building on adequacy? Is it focusing more on overcoming food rules? So I'd be really looking at at that and then obviously tailoring in as well people's um, dietary preferences, allergies or intolerances. We know a lot of intolerances develop as a result of living in a malnourished body as well. So it's working with the person to find that balance between what feels safe and what can we start to challenge. And then we're also looking, you know, too, at someone's ability to engage with the meal plan and how they're able to um, complete what is required in order to nourish their bodies again. Um, And that's where we might have to work very collaboratively to ensure that we're putting in using different strategies to ensure that someone is able to continue progressing with the meal plan. Definitely. I think maybe what would be useful for the listeners is the approach to nutrition, because obviously, like you said, trying to debunk a lot of numbers out there. Do you work on a um, portions or a calorie basis? How would you, you know, work with a with a client who maybe is doing these behaviours like calorie yeah. counting? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I don't talk about calories with my clients. Um, I don't think that it's helpful at all. As an intuitive eater, you don't count calories. So I don't want to start to encourage behaviours such as calorie counting that are not part of normal eating. Um, so as a dietitian, of course, I am, you know, part of my training and my role is to be calorie aware. So I may be aware of the amount of energy that is on someone's meal plan, but it's not something that I would discuss with them. And so really the, if we're thinking about someone being at high risk of refeeding, there are guidelines as to the amount of energy to start someone on, which is safe. Um, so in that regards, as a dietitian, I will calculate the safe amount of food to start someone on. But then once we're out of that, what I use to guide the progression of a meal plan is really someone's progress. If they are weight suppressed or underweight, then, you know, using progression in regards to weight restoration as a guide as to how much energy that person needs. Um, having worked in the eating disorder space for a very long time, I'm, you know, I have a good understanding of how much a young adult female or an adult male, et cetera, will need in order to support their weight restoration journey. And that's always what I have at the back of my mind and I'm working towards with, with someone. Um, so if someone is at risk of refeeding syndrome and we're starting on smaller portions, I use a quarter portion, half portion, full portion as a graded approach up towards that normal portion. Um, and then a normal portion being, um, so in, in my practice and as, as many clinicians in this space will use, um, we use the third of a plate guide. Some people call it the sort of plate by plate approach. Um, which is that when we're building a main meal, we're really ticking off those key macronutrients. So third of a plate protein, third of a plate carbohydrates, third of a plate coming from your fruit or vegetables, so your fibrous foods, and then there's an added fat source in that. 
Each of those is equivalent roughly to one measuring cup or two serving spoons. So that's what I'm referring to when I'm, I'm speaking about the full portion. Um, of course, then as part of people's meal plans, there'll be snacks and puddings and, and other foods built around these three meals a day. Definitely. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned something, you know, um, worthwhile is, you know, the generalistic amount for potentially a, a healthy for a, a an adolescent or a young adult, mm -hmm. for instance, but everyone's so individual, aren't they? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think everyone, I think there's a lot of dispelling that needs to be done because you, there's obviously these calculators that, you know, are so unhelpful and tell you, you know, somebody needs this amount, even nutrition labels, which yes. again, give you average amounts, but everyone's got a different metabolic rate to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of what my clients experience is a really big hurdle in overcoming is sitting with the knowledge that energy requirements change day to day. So part of the eating disorders control is controlling a person to have the exact same amount of food every day, but that's not how a human being functions we need different amounts every day. And it's not until you can really move into that phase three of intuitive eating that you can practice that. Um, so definitely when part of someone's eating disorder behaviors is that control over calories or weighing food or, um, you know, amounts of food, that can definitely be a, a, a challenge to overcome with progressing for the meal plan. Definitely, definitely. And it's, I'm sure it's a definitely a, a long a long journey. It doesn't happen overnight, um, especially when habits have been formed for so many, many months, years, days, even, you know. I suppose, you know, that actually leads me on to something that might be useful to talk about is what are some common challenges that people mm -hmm. face when, you know, nutritionally going through re a rehabilitated rehabilitation stage or meal planning? And how do you, how would you guide somebody? Yeah, yeah. There's, Potentially a whole lot of challenges, I guess. It's very individual as well. Um, I think one of the most common challenges that I see is actually in regards to someone's digestion and being able to tolerate the amount of food that is needed in order to support weight restoration um, or, or re-nourishment. When someone has gone through a period, you know, whether it be three months or many years of being undernourished and following a restrictive diet that can have a huge impact on someone's digestion. Um, what we know from the research in regards to eating disorders is that about 98% of people with an eating disorder will experience digestive issues. So it is super common. And as a dietitian, this is one of the, the main symptoms and side effects that people will talk about. Um, so digestive issues, what I'm referring to there is abdominal pain and bloating, constipation or diarrhea, a lot of wind or gas production as well. So it's really that, that feeling of fullness, even on um, what would be considered a small amount of food to someone without an eating disorder um, and very slow digestion. So what we're really asking you know, a lot of people to do is to eat a meal, then eat another one when the first meal or snack is still being digested, digested by the body. Um, because the transit time from food moving from the stomach into the intestines slows down. Um, so I think a big challenge is 
one, just from a physical aspect, being able to tolerate the amount of food. I think secondly, one of the big challenges that I see is people not believing that their body needs the amount of food that they do need in order to re-nourish. And thirdly, it would be the increase disordered eating or eating disorder thoughts or if you have anorexia, the eating disorder voice, that can really try, you know, it's really going to do what it can um, to change someone's mind about their their meal plan um, and that's very much connected to the fear that so many people have about, well, if I eat this, my weight is going to skyrocket or, you know, X, Y, Z is going to happen and also connected to that Two is that when people start to nourish their body more, we're then faced with some key challenges in regards to body image. So body image distress might increase as might thoughts of self-harm as uh, weight restores. Definitely. And I think also, you know, you mentioned something very key is when you first start, I know from my own experience, clients experience, when you first start, you know, refeeding or, you know, eating more again, your weight tends to, to, to go jump quite quickly mm. at the start. I'm sure that you've experienced this with clients, is that that initial fear of is it going to carry on like that? Yes, absolutely. Because then you've got a very small piece of evidence that, well, Talia, my weight has gone up by X kilos this week. What's to say that it's not going to go up the exact same each week? And it's really important to you know, maybe spend a minute to talk about this. So, if someone is undernourished and weight suppressed, um, what we see is that in the first potentially two to three weeks of the weight restoration or, or nutritional rehabilitation journey is that weight, the weight change on the scale might be more than what we would typically see. And that's a result primarily due to glycogen being replenished. So glycogen is the storage form of carbohydrate that all human beings have it is depleted when someone is following a restrictive diet. So it is stored in your liver and in your muscles, and it's a very heavy molecule. So each molecule of glycogen attracts about two or three water molecules. So it triples or even quadruples in weight. So it's very heavy. Um, And then we have an increase in just the amount of food in someone's body. They may not be able to open their bowels. So we're seeing more food sitting in there for a few days. Um, Increased levels of hydration as well. And all of these are going to contribute to that, you know, those first initial weights that are taken um, in those first couple of weeks. But then what we see is that once those glycogen stores are repleted and the meal plan is more consistent, that we then get the true reflection of someone's weight trajectory. Definitely. And I think potentially I was quite um, fortunate of this is I quickly got good digestion and it kind of the extreme hunger or at least regular hunger cues. It's not the case for everyone. Mm. And again, everyone's individual, but you will f- start to find your body switching on Yeah, and it makes it easier to kind of follow that plan. And you're like, Oh, actually maybe this isn't, you know, it's kind of like what I always say is that you have to be curious in mm. your body, be curious and be brave because yeah. it is, it's trusting in something that you maybe don't believe in. Absolutely. And you're so right about, you know, a key challenge being for many that they don't experience hunger for many months. Mm. And it's that challenge of, well, if I'm not hungry, it's really hard to eat. And it absolutely is. 
And that's where, as you said, it's putting trust in the process. Definitely. And, and, and again, it, I, I've expressed that in some of maybe my, my social media posts is sometimes as humans, even if you've not got an eating disorder, we don't feel really, really hungry. And hunger is, again, it's learning what a hunger actually is. Because a lot of people I see think hunger is that bottomless pit, stomach rumbling, lightheaded. Well, actually, if we look at the intuitive eating scale, which I'm sure you've, you've touched upon within your sessions, a scale, you know, really we should start eating when we're starting to feel or even start to think about food, maybe slightly peckish. peckish you, you know, hunger is, is about discer- discerning what actually hunger is. And sometimes it's just eating for, for pleasure and convenience, which I'm sure you, you know, you talk about in the Raves model. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think there's a lot of disconnect because there's a lack of trust in the body and in the body signals. And if someone's been in a restrictive phase for a while, they may have forgotten that hunger is not just physical and forgotten how to actually be in tune with those mental signs of hunger as well. So that's what we call head hunger or mouth hunger. Um, there's lots of different types of hunger, not just physical. Definitely, and and I suppose you've you've touched on this as well a bit about the, you know, the potentially the, the mental challenges somebody would go through if it, you're experiencing all of this stuff, which is a lot for any human. Um, but how how do you approach the emotional aspects within you know within your practice and helping people to have that comprehensive and holistic approach? I think it's so important to, when you're working with another human, knowing that this is potentially one of the hardest things that they are ever going to have to go through. It is really so important to work with someone rather than against them and really try to find that middle ground in what someone is able to feel safe with in regards to the next steps and showing so much compassion. And In an ideal world, everyone would have access to a psychologist to be able to work on that aspect of their recovery, their emotions, any feelings and thoughts that come up. Um, We do bring that into dietetic sessions as well, but we're not a trained psychologist. Um, So it is one of the sort of key tools that I use in my practice is a food and thought diary. So some people will really benefit from that in starting to track their feelings and their thoughts We know that restrictive eating and compensatory behaviours for a lot of people with an eating disorder is a mechanism to suppress or avoid feelings and emotions. So part of nutritional rehabilitation, it's like these emotional floodgates do open and that can be really distressing for someone. Um, So I think really from a nutritional perspective, there is a lot of, you know, counselling involved in dietetic sessions, a lot of discussion and processing of these thoughts and feelings and how they're connected to food. I think really breaking down into small steps is really important. Um, I think people really want to recover and be intuitive eaters, but unfortunately you can't jump to that phase. You have to go through, you know, phase one and phase two of raves before that. So lots of self-care, learning to be compassionate to yourself, which is very difficult for someone with an eating disorder as well. Um, So sometimes it is, you know, almost putting not a pause on the nutritional aspect of recovery, but shifting the focus to aspects like self-care and working on strengthening the healthy self 
um, and talking more about strategies to support someone's mental and psychological health while softly working on the nutrition on the side. Definitely. And and no, everyone goes at a different speed as well, for sure. Obviously, when you're on that journey, again, different length for everyone, but how would you kind of know somebody was at a space that maybe they were ready to go at it alone? So when I think about sort of moving away from the meal plan or sort of, I guess, having less dietetic input, is that what you're referring to there? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so that's where sort of that, that phased approach can be really important to review with someone. So we're thinking about... I guess number one, usually the most intensive support is when you're in that phase of establishing an adequate amount of food. Now, of course, as you said, everyone is very different, is going to progress at different lengths um, and speeds. Really, I see most people step away or start to reduce the need for dietetic input once they're working in phase two and then on to phase three. So a lot of the, once someone gets the confidence to be able to continue to move forward with overcoming food rules, challenging fear foods, then they can start to build up the confidence to do that more on their own with less intensive support. But definitely it's when we're moving away from a more prescriptive meal plan into intuitive eating, um, we might start to space out sessions then. So Going from being on a prescriptive meal plan, which not everyone needs, but a lot of people will need at least a template of how to eat in a day, what does normal eating look like as a starting point into intuitive eating. The majority of people that I work with at a minimum, that's going to take around 12 months. Um, So it it is a, a longer journey. It is more intense at the beginning. But I would say definitely when someone is close to or at a healthy weight for them and that's a whole nother discussion onto how we would know that is you know someone's at that place when physically their health is stable you know their GP or medical practitioner can see that blood work has improved heart rate blood pressure etc we see a, a shift in their mindset when it comes to their relationship with food and their body so we can really see that someone has built up their healthy self and their eating disorder self is reduced. So that's a really good sign that someone is able to be more independent in their thinking and take more control again. Yeah, exactly. More responsibility, more control of their meal plan, need less input from say a dietitian or a recovery coach. So there's a few things. It's a shift in psychology. It's how well someone's doing um, in regards to being able to independently uh, follow their their meal plan and continue to work through different challenges and experiments that there might be in regards to their meal plan um, and also looking at the, the physical health aspect as well. Definitely I think it, you know again some people might from my own end of my experience it was that gentle check-in every couple of months yeah. and then that was like oh I don't actually need this anymore I can kind of go at it alone and that's the experience for for many people. Yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned before, not everyone is, is, I suppose, to some degree lucky enough to have access to support. And I know that we've we've talked about the resources that you have online. And I'm sure, you know, I'm going to leave all the links down below to your website and the stuff there and 
as many podcasts. And again, my side, I don't focus so much on the nutrition, but it might help with the the mental aspect. And there is stuff out there if you can't access specific treatment, it is the best approach, you know, because it really can be that kind of hand holding. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can still recover if you don't have have that have that support. So I suppose, you know, on a on a leaving note, what what words of wisdom would would you give the listeners who are potentially embarking on this journey of nutritional rehabilitation? I guess a couple of things I would say is that it does take time and patience really is such a key to recovery and learning with some uncomfortable feelings. Um, so patience and trusting the process. It is a huge challenge to shift from believing that your eating disorder is the thing to trust in those coping mechanisms versus trusting in yourself again. So really trying to trust the process and trust the the steps that it takes in order to get to that point of intuitive eating as part of your recovery again. And I think also just, you know, there's never any silly questions. I think it's always best to ask for support, ask your team the questions, tell people how you're feeling because bottling it up and ruminating on these thoughts that are probably going to be then misinterpreted by the eating disorder it's best to just have you know try to have that open conversation about if you are struggling with your meal plan because then as a you know as a dietitian we can work together and see well what's working what's not working let's try and change it so that we can keep trying to move forward definitely and and again there is going to be stagnations potentially in somebody's journey a recovery is definitely not linear I've seen it time and time again but that doesn't mean it won't happen and recoveries recovered or recovery is different for everyone yeah um but thank you so much that you know even from myself who's been through it I learned a lot of new things today which Mm -hmm. you know um I'm sure I'm sure the listeners have too so thank you again how would people find you yes so the best way to find me would be through Instagram the handle is tc nutrition and then you can link through to my website there. My, my name is too difficult to spell. And then on our website, we have a whole bunch of, of resources and I'm currently building an, an online course as well called Rule Breaker, um, which is a sort of uh, online meal support um, and a course to, to help people to overcome their fear foods and food rules. So watch the space for that as well. Amazing. So it's all go, go, go at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's amazing. And like I said, I will link everything below for the listeners so they they can they can access that but um as always for for all of the listeners um if you do have any episode requests just get in touch with me via social media or email again all the contact details will be down below and leave a review if you liked it and it helps me do what i do so yeah thank you so much for listening thank you again talia and i'll speak to you soon thank you for having me